RX. I'm Kurt Anderson, and this is the Studio 360 Podcast. The latest version of Shaft opened in theaters a couple of weeks ago. It stars Jesse T. Usher and Samuel L. Jackson. Hi, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm looking for... Shaft. Mm-hmm. Who's asking? John Shaft Jr., your son. My son? Junior? Yeah. It has had not great reviews and not great ticket sales. Maybe it's a case of Shaft Overdraft. It's the fifth movie in the Shaft franchise and the third one to be called just Shaft. Not to mention a 1973 TV series also called Shaft. But looking back at the original Shaft, it's more understandable why filmmakers have kept trying again and again. That 1971 Shaft is about a black private eye hired by a Harlem gangster to find the gangster's daughter. But even people who really love the movie don't really remember the plot. What they remember isn't exactly what Shaft does or why he does it, but how he looks as he's doing it. This tall, strong black man who had such presence walking across the screen. Hey, where the hell are you going, Shaft? To get laid, where the hell are you going? That boy's got a lot of mouth on him. It was released in the summer of 1971, and Shaft was an instant hit. At the box office, it took in a dozen times what it cost to make and helped save the MGM studio, which had been struggling. Its commercial success also showed Hollywood that audiences were really hungry for a rough, tough, black leading man. It's a movie starring a black person having the same opportunity to do all the cool things that you saw white people do with music. And we suddenly had a new Hollywood genre with a new name, Blaxploitation. As part of our American Icon series, we asked producer Tracy Hunt to look into the legacy of Shaft. There's a photo I keep thinking about. It's a black and white photo of this kid named Red Jackson. He's a black teen living in Harlem and a member of a gang. The picture shows him in profile. He stares out a shattered window, a cigarette dangling from his lips. He doesn't look like the cool, tough gangsters you see in movies. He looks young and scared. The photo was taken by Gordon Parks for Life magazine in 1948. Parks was Life's first black staff photographer, and he documented segregation in the South, poverty in New York City, and icons like Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali. For a long time, he's been one of my favorite photographers because his photos are rich and nuanced and capture Black life in ways few had done before. But wait, this is the same guy who directed Shaft? Shut your mouth. I'm talking about Shaft. People love this movie, but I just don't get it. It's so cheesy. I mean, the dialogue. The girl over there with the dark hair and the groovy boobs. The action scenes. And the women are such doormats. I love you. Yeah, I know. Take it easy. Yeah, that was cheesy kind of entertainment. You know what I mean? Like, improbable at that. Stephanie Dunn is a professor at Morehouse College and the author of Bad Bitches and Sassy Supermamas, Black Power Action Films. She says before Shaft, Hollywood didn't really make movies that starred black people for black people. 
This frustrated critics, and soon they were projecting that frustration onto Hollywood's leading black male movie star. Now you listen to me for a minute. There's something I want to tell you about me. Sidney Poitier. I know you're colored, and I, and I think you're beautiful. In a 1967 essay in the New York Times, a black critic named Clifford Mason even calls Poitier a showcase nigger and mocked him for the kinds of roles he took. Sidney, you know, you know, as much as I love him as an actor, there was a sort of a whitewashed version of an African-American male. Sam Pollard has edited dozens of films, including Jungle Fever, Juice, and Half Past Autumn, the life and works of Gordon Parks. We all go back to Sidney Poitier and Tony Curtis and the Defiant Ones. In the Defiant Ones, Poitier and Curtis play escaped convicts. In a pivotal scene, they're trying to get away by jumping on a train. Poitier makes it, but Curtis can't keep up. He can't reach Sidney's hand. <laughs> what does Sidney do? Sidney doesn't leave him. Sidney falls off the train with him. So they both get recaptured. Then black audiences always said, Sidney, what what's on your mind? <laughs> you know? Even James Baldwin was troubled by Sidney's sacrifice, writing, when Sidney jumps off the train, the white liberal people were much relieved and joyful. But when black people saw him jump, they yelled, get back on the train, you fool. And so there's the demand for stories that have African-American people in mind and that are not told from a white perspective starring a black man. In other words, people were ready for a black hero who would have left Tony Curtis in the dust. They were ready for John Shaft. Me? Are you sure it's me? The idea for Shaft started in the 1960s with Alan Rensler, a white editor at Macmillan Publishers. He was active in the civil rights movement and wanted a character that reflected the more militant attitude emerging among black activists like Stokely Carmichael. We have to stop reacting and we have to become aggressive. We can no longer stand up and beg anybody for a victory. Rinsler contacted the only black literary agent he knew, but the agent suggested another white guy, Ernest Tidyman. His shaft is a cynical and tough loner, and despite the inspiration behind him, he's apolitical. He works with and against a group of black militants, and he works with and against the police. Shaft represents this individualist style and attitude. You know, he's not about the community, right? Before it was even in stores, Tidyman sold the film rights. Now the studio, MGM, needed a director. He really wasn't crazy about shooting the film. David Parks is Gordon Parks' youngest son. Gordon Parks had already directed The Learning Tree about his childhood in Kansas. Now MGM was offering him the chance to do something completely different. What happened was he had to pay the bills. And so he said, well, this is an opportunity to make a lot of money, and he did. But money wasn't his only motivation. In his book, Voices in the Mirror, Parks wrote that by making the film, he would, quote, give black youth their first cinematic hero, comparable to James Cagney or Humphrey Bogart. Well, man, it, it's, it, it, you got to understand, up until that point, there was never a black hero, okay? I mean, he was giving the finger to the white boys. <laughs> that had never happened before. David worked as his dad's assistant on Shaft, he says they were all set to begin filming in New York when MGM called Parks at the last moment, demanding they move the production to an L.A. soundstage. He moved his fist down. He says, I'm not going to give it up. I ain't shooting the film unless we shoot it in New York. I said, go on, Pops, you know. 
In the early hours of January 3rd, 1971, Gordon Parks and his crew perched on a rooftop in Times Square to shoot the movie's opening sequence. The first shot of Midtown looks almost like a grainy documentary film, but then the camera pans down the busy sidewalks and over the movie marquees before fixing on a subway entrance. That's when Richard Roundtree, a former model and high school football star, climbs the last couple of stairs and emerges as Shaft. Even if you've never seen Shaft, you probably already know the music. And you might even recognize this walk. In a beige turtleneck and brown leather coat, handsome, self-assured, and strong. And it's the way that Richard Roundtree is inhabiting the Shaft character from the very beginning. The way he's walking, sort of owning that city. And as essential to the power of this scene as Roundtree's walk is the theme song by Isaac Hayes. Hayes died in 2008, but in the documentary Soul on Cinema about the making of Shaft, you can watch him in the studio with Gordon Parks. And when Shaft pops up out of the subway, that's when they should really come on and carry him all the way through Times Square. That should be a driving, savage beat, you know, so that we write with him all the time. Uh I have used it as um, cleaning up the house soundtrack. Uh, You know, hey, you, you know, you... Turn the music up loud, you know, put shaft on, say, oh, that's me playing, you know, get the house clean real quick like that. Bassist James Alexander of the Barcays played on the soundtrack. Uh, The guitar player, Charles Pitts, who's better known as Skip, he started playing this this wah-wah line. Skip Pitts, who died in 2012, told the TV show Memphis Sounds that his famous wah-wah riff was created almost by accident. I was tuning up. And I just say, man, is that to a song? I say, no, I'm just riffing. He said, keep doing it. Don't change anything. Don't change nothing. You just stay right there. So for about an hour and a half, he just played that little groove. He just played that over and over and over again. James Alexander says repetition was a key part of how Isaac Hayes composed. Isaac just started hitting, for a long time, he just hit that same note. For about 30 minutes, I just played just letting the note ring. And then a while, you know, he he started trying, like, different variations of it. We'll come back to our story about Shaft. But first, I want to remind you to follow us on Twitter. We are at Studio360Show. And now, back to our American Icons look at the movie Shaft with producer Tracy Hunt. As the music fades out, the opening sequence ends with Shaft walking into a shoeshine parlor. Thanks, brother. David Park says it was all shot very quickly. My old man was, you know, he was a two-take man. I mean, you know, that was good. Let's do one more for insurance. Gordon Parks wanted to keep the film on schedule and under its limited budget. Can we start with the word budget? And like a lot of B-movies from back then, it showed. That was a determining aspect of the details. The sound mixing is awful. The fake blood looks too fake. And since the production couldn't afford to block off traffic for the movie's Times Square sequence, that shot of Roundtree almost getting hit by a cab, that was real. 
The acting also wasn't great. Ted Zachary was an assistant director on the film. Gordon was not John Ford. Okay, he he did not have the knowledge of working with actors. But Zachary says Parks' elegance, his style, the way he carried himself, became part of John Shaft. I think the Shaft character could have been Gordon. John Shaft had a mustache. So did Parks. Shaft wore full-length tailored coats and neutral colors. Again, so did Parks. And sometimes when people are talking about John Shaft, it sounds a lot like they're talking about Gordon Parks. He had a lot of style. He was a great dresser, you know. He's the elegant guy. As all the chaos is around him, he's floating through it. And that's Gordon, man. <laughs> that's Gordon Parks. Although most of the production went smoothly, sometimes, especially when it was raining, the movie's black stars, Richard Roundtree and Moses Gunn, were late. There was a scene with the two of them, and they both showed up close to an hour, and I said, what happened to you guys? And Moses Gunn looks at me, he says, you don't know what it's like to be a black man standing on a street corner and all the cabs pass you by. Hey, taxi! What the hell is this? Your white mother... After that, Roundtree and Gunn always got a ride. As much as the realities of 1970s New York City seeped onto the set, Park set about creating a fantasy. A tough, sexy, black private eye in total control of his surroundings. And Parks chose Richard Roundtree to star in that fantasy, even though this was his first film. David Parks knew Richard Roundtree and recommended him to his dad. I mean, I mean, the guy's a good-looking dude, man. Before this, Roundtree had mostly done commercials and print ads as a model. You have reached double R. If no name appears that I recognize, the likelihood of me picking up is slim. Roundtree, who played Shaft in three movies, a TV series, and appeared in the Shaft reboot in 2000, wouldn't talk to us. His manager said after more than 45 years, Roundtree wanted to talk about something else. But at the TCM Classic Film Festival in 2011, Roundtree told the audience that Gordon Parks wanted a certain look. And he said, um, well, we're looking for someone that looks uh, someone like this. And he points to a ad that I had done a year ago. I said, that's me. <laughs> and he looked at the ad, he looked at me and said, mm-hmm. <laughs> the fantasy Parks created with Roundtree is a very macho, male-centered one. Baby, are you all right? The woman only exists to show how cool and sexy Shaft is. I got to feel like a machine. That's no way to feel. I mean, his name is John Shaft. Come here, baby. But still, Parks' background in photojournalism meant that his version of 1970s Harlem would still be authentic. It was the Harlem I knew, you know, it was the Harlem I grew up with. The guys who looked kind of slick, the guys who were hustlers, the guys who were con artists, you know, the police who had a presence, all that stuff I saw. On July 2nd, 1971, moviegoers finally got to see this new kind of hero. We knew we had a winner when the opening sequence, him coming out of the subway, and the music and Isaac clicked in. There were people up there standing up, clapping and cheering about that. Ted Zachary, the assistant director, 
couldn't go to the film's premiere and saw the movie a few weeks after it opened. And behind us, there were four black kids who were probably somewhere between 10 and 15. Uh, we saw like a 7 o'clock show. These kids were there since noon. And one would say, watch what he does here. Look at this. Look, watch, watch, watch what he does to this guy here. They were so enamored with this guy, he instantly became a hero. It's kind of funny, like when you look back at the movie now, because it isn't like Shaft is he's even a very good te- detective. Before he created the Luke Cage series for Netflix, Cheo Hadari Coker was a music journalist, and he saw Shaft's influence on hip-hop artists like Rakim, LL Cool J, and Big Daddy Kane. Well, Big Daddy Kane is, is Shaft. <laughs> you know, he look, kind of looked like Richard Roundtree with a hot top fade. Dark skin, mustache, handsome, and I always thought that if Shaft can rhyme, he'd sound like B. Daddy Kane. But I'm like Shaft, so cool that you feel a draft, or like Superfly, I live in do or die. I give your girl a kiss of death just like... One, two, one, two, you got the RZA right here from the almighty Wu-Tang Clan, I'm in the building. We're talking about the great movie and soundtrack to Shaft. Uh, they came actually to one of our shows, this is After Party. That's right, at about four o'clock in the morning, the RZA was happy to talk about Shaft. For us in America as black men and women, a lot of our films and movies has depicted us in always a submissive or inferior position and never being a full man. And every man is, not wants to be, every man is a man. And characters like that were a glimpse for young black Americans on how to be a cool man, you know what I mean? And, and I think his coolness rubbed off on me. Cheo Hadari Coker says he wanted to capture that attitude for Luke Cage, a Marvel superhero with skin so strong that bullets and knives bounce off of him. And to a certain extent, Luke Cage is bulletproof shaft. Take him out. I'm about sick of always having to buy new clothes. But Luke Cage could also be called Sensitive Shaft. Luke Cage starts out a loner, but he cares about his community. And he wants the women he sleeps with to call the next day. One of my favorite parts of Shaft is a montage where he goes around Harlem, knocking on doors, trying to find an old friend. Hey, Seven. Hey, man, what's going on? See you, man. You're seeing these various iconic shots of Harlem as he walks around. When we did something similar in Luke Cage, we just have this various scenes of him talking to people and the music and everything else. I mean, we, we lifted that directly from Shaft. That moment of a black man walking with rhythm is one of the staples of the black exploitation hero. 1971 also saw the release of Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, directed by Melvin Van Peebles. Both films were a success at the box office, and they helped bring about a new era in filmmaking. Black exploitation. This is the end of your rotten life, you dope pusher! At first, men dominated this new genre, but it soon made stars of women like Tamara Dobson and Pam Greer. It was easy for him because he really didn't believe it was coming. But it ain't gonna be easy for you because you better believe it's coming. But as more and more of these movies were produced to meet demand, the quality rapidly declined and black exploitation became a bit of a joke. Uh, black Film Hall of Fame. <laughs> oh, the Black Film Hall of Fame. Hall of Fame, so it's one of the least. 
though it still has many fans. Across the 110th Street, the Mac, Hitman. My co-producer Daniel and I wanted to know how much Harlem still remembered Shaft. So we went up to 125th Street and were quickly directed to this store located right beside the Apollo. Black classic movies. That is the name of the store. So you walk up the stairs and into this room and you see Aika Peter at the center. She's completely surrounded wall to wall, floor to ceiling with DVDs. And more than 45 years after its release, Shaft is still a bestseller. Every week we sell, you know, four copies or sometimes five copies, sometimes two copies, but it's something that every week we sell it. Yeah. Daniel and I were there for a few minutes talking to Peter when this guy walked in. That music still sells to this day. That that Isaac Hayes still sells. I knew Isaac Hayes personally. Really? How come? A friend of mine was his limousine driver. When Isaac Hayes used to come out, he he liked orange juice and the New York Times in the backseat of the car, the limousine. He told us to call him Brother Shabazz and says that he saw Shaft when it first came out. I might have been like maybe about 13, 14, something like that, 12. But it was good because you went sneak in the theater or you sneak in the back. Because Harlem had a lot, all these things with theaters around. Roosevelt Theater down the block. Do you remember how the audience reacted when they were watching it? You could feel that excitement. Oh, that's Harlem on 25th Street, Apollo. You know, all the areas that you could identify with. Say, look at the beauty of, look at Harlem, man. Oh, man, they're going to hunt. And then sometimes you might look for yourself. You might have thought they might have caught you in the scene <laughs> walking across. And there it is. The thrill of watching a movie and believing for the first time that you might just see yourself or something that you recognize as your own. Shaft still isn't the movie for me. I don't give a damn what he likes. What the hell are you pumping me for, huh? But as I see more and more images of black men and women shot and brutalized by police, watching this black man sit in a police station totally relaxed, disrespecting white cops, is for me, a black woman, very gratifying. Don't get wise with me, Shaft. There's a very simple way for me to go. I put your goddamn ass in. I'll sue your goddamn ass for false arrest. Do you expect me to? Gordon Parks died in 2006 at the age of 93. He did a lot in his life. He wrote books, composed music, and took some of the most iconic photos of the 20th century. And he also directed Shaft. He may have preferred some of the other work he did, but he was proud of the movie's success, even directing its sequel in 1972. As he told Roger Ebert that year, we need movies about the history of our people, but we need heroic fantasies about our people too. We all need a little James Bond now and then. Tracy Hunt co-produced that piece with Daniel Guimet in 2017. And you can listen to any of our dozens of other American Icon stories and full hours at studio360.org. Thanks for listening. And you can subscribe to Studio 360 wherever you get podcasts.